This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 475. Once things start getting hard, that's when the good ideas, if you persevere, start emerging. And so that's one of the big traps is to quit too soon because you mistake the hardness with which those ideas come to you for inferiority, whereas they're actually often much better. Almost everyone feels stuck in some way. Whether you're muddling through a midlife crisis, wrestling writer's block, trapped in a thankless job, or trying to remedy a fraying friendship, the resulting emotion is usually a mix of anxiety, uncertainty, fear, anger, and numbness. But it doesn't have to be this way. Our featured book today is the roadmap we all need to escape our inertia and flourish. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Our guest today is Adam Alter. He's here to help us get unstuck. He's written a book called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. And I'm going to be asking Adam to share about how to tackle a project's inevitable midpoint lull, ways you can better manage unwanted change, the benefits of artificial constraints, and embracing the paradox that restrictions can be liberating and much, much more. Hey, I want to let you know real quick that Read to Lead Plus is finally open and you can try it out free for 30 days. After that, it's just nine bucks a month. What do you get when you join Read to Lead Plus at jeffbrown.me? You get access to monthly live streams led by yours truly on a variety of topics. You get access to monthly guest expert training calls, plus access to other challenges and workshops, networking events, and opportunities to have the spotlight on you inside the community. All of that and more available inside the Read to Lead community this week only. Try it free for 30 days. In fact, this coming Monday, we'll be welcoming in our first ever guest expert trainer, Christina Curtis. If you're a leader or entrepreneur or executive or anyone who wants to squeeze more time or money or joy from every day, then you're going to want to hear from Christina, our first ever guest expert trainer inside the Read to Lead community. It's all a part of your Read to Lead Plus membership. So when you try it for 30 days, you can attend Christina's training for free, my upcoming training this month for free, plus all the other benefits of membership. And if you like it, if you want to keep coming back month after month, it's just $9 a month or $99 a year. You can check it out right now at jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me to find out more about how you can get access to Read to Lead Plus free for 30 days. One more time, that's jeffbrown.me. Adam Alter is a professor of marketing and psychology and the Stansky Teaching Excellence Faculty Fellow at New York University's Stern School of Business with an affiliated professorship in social psychology at NYU's psychology department. In 2020, he was voted professor of the year by the faculty and student body at NYU's Stern School of Business and was among the Poets and Quants 40 Best Professors Under 40 in 2017. He is the New York Times bestselling author of two books, including Drunk Tank Pink and Irresistible. And his new book is called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. Well, Adam, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Uh, you probably don't know this, but at the beginning of this year, I identified and tweeted about six books 
I'm particularly looking forward to in the first half of, of 2023. Uh, in a couple of months, I'll do the same thing for the second half, but I, <laughs> I limited myself to the first half of the year, one book a month. What are books I'm looking forward to in the first six months of this year? Your book was one of those six books, and you're the fourth of the six authors I've been able to connect with so far. But I thought it was funny. You talk in your book early on about how when your parents named you, they thought they were giving you a fairly unique name in Adam. You get to school, you find out that's not necessarily <laughs> the case. And I just realized this morning before we, we got together that among those six books I chose, two of the authors are named Adam. <laughs> there you go. That's been my life experience. I've come across a lot of Adams. But anyway, thank you so much for identifying my book among the list. I'm, I'm flattered. Well, I thought we'd first dive into the survey you conducted a few years ago, 2020, I believe it was. What did you learn from this survey? I know much of what you learned led to this book, but what, what were some of the specific things you came away with having put that survey out there? Yeah, it was a survey trying to understand how people experience stuckness, being stuck. And uh, what I discovered was a few things. First, that everyone seems to be stuck in at least one respect. By stuckness, I basically mean there's an area where for anything from months to years to decades, you've felt mired in a particular area of your life where you'd like things to change. It could be professional or personal or creative or hobby-based or athletic. It doesn't really matter the domain. But it takes people 10 to 15 seconds on average to say, oh, yeah, here's the thing, and sometimes less than that even. And they'll tell me then, you know, they'll type out, this is where I'm stuck and this is the situation. And then I ask some follow-up questions and I learned that, first of all, not surprisingly, it's aversive. It doesn't feel good to be stuck, not surprisingly. <laughs> but uh, people, people say that they feel lonely and isolated, and they, they, which is interesting because mm -hmm. I'm getting thousands of people from around the world telling me I'm stuck and I feel alone. And yet when you break down the walls between these thousands of people, this is a universal human experience. And so it's interesting that people feel stuck and alone, whereas they are just like everyone else. Uh, and then I asked them, you know, what would you do to get unstuck? And there's a fair measure of desperation. Even people who say they're financially stuck are willing to pay a lot of money to get unstuck, <laughs> paradoxically. So this is an urgent issue for a lot of people. It's top of mind for many of them. It doesn't take them long to think about it. And so I've spent a, a lot of time thinking about that. And, and this book is essentially a roadmap for getting unstuck. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, as I mentioned to you, I'm three-fourths of the way through the book. I've got the last section to complete. And I've lost count of the number of, of highlights I've made in the book. I plan to pull those out later and capture them permanently in my, my notes app. But uh, I've got my work cut out for me because there's a lot of stuff in here of value that I found really, really good for me going forward with some things that I'm working on, particularly some things that I'm teaching others, a lot that I can pull out to make those things I'm doing uh, and sharing with others better than they currently are. So, uh, so thank you for that. Oh, good. Um, with any project or journey, there's uh, inevitably uh, sort of a, a midpoint lull. Uh, some might call it a dip. Talk a bit about ways to tackle that. Maybe even dive into a little bit about what you call narrow bracketing as one example. Yeah, narrow bracketing is very effective. So as you say, in long-term goals, there tends to be a lull in the middle where it's harder to perceive progress. You don't have that sort of instant burst of energy that you get at the beginning of a project. And sometimes the goal state, the end state is too far away 
for it to be something that magnetically draws you in. And so you're stuck in the middle is the term that a lot of people use. And so the best way to avoid being stuck in the middle is to shrink the middle. And that's using a technique that you described, narrow bracketing. And what you basically do is you say that, um, you know, you might think globally of, say, writing a book as going from zero to 100,000 words, which is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising that somewhere in the middle there, you might hit a lull. But there are there are ways to break that down into smaller sub-goals that by definition, because the goals are smaller, shrink the middle and sometimes they're eradicated completely. So if your goal is something like daily, I will write 200 words. And so in time, I'll have 100,000 words. It's just going to take a bit of time to get there. That is one way to shrink the middle where in the process of writing each of those 200 word bursts, maybe you reward yourself with some small reward. Maybe you like a particular food or you there's an activity you like doing that's a little bit more hedonic or hedonistic, something that you enjoy. You could reward yourself that way. And as a result, by breaking it down into these little sub goals, you shrink the middle. And so you avoid that lull. I know when I wrote a book a couple of years ago, that worked really, really well for for me. Uh, I had an idea of how many words I needed to write and I knew how much time I had to write. And so, you know, I just did the math and broke it down. And for me, that was 300 and some odd words three or four times a week. And if I could manage that, that daunting task of writing a book seemed a whole lot less daunting. Well, none of our lives are immune from minor disruptions and some major disruptions along the way. What, what are some things we can do to better tackle, Adam, unwanted changes that, that come our way? Yeah. So it, this is a really interesting thing. I, it's probably the first bit of research that I ever did that that ultimately appeared in this book and that was relevant to the book, which was that across the world, we vary in terms of how much and to what extent we anticipate change and particularly negative changes. Mm-hmm. So in, in Western countries, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in Britain, New Zealand, people are blindsided by bad things that happen. We generally don't anticipate them. Um, it's not really folded into our culture. We focus on improvement, self-improvement, strategies for doing better over time, things improving. Mm-hmm. And so we get blindsided by negative changes. Now, in the East, East Asia, particularly Japan, China, South Korea, part of the philosophy that a lot of people subscribe to suggests that negative things will happen and changes will happen. And so they're actually prepared better than we are. So the first thing to do is to say change will happen. A lot of it will will be positive, but a lot of it won't be. And so the first thing to do is to kind of expect it. And that's useful. That doesn't mean being paralyzed by the expectation, but it means not being blindsided when that change does happen, when it does emerge. Um, And so that's really where the book begins. I talk about understanding that change is inevitable. I talk a little bit about when it's most likely to happen. There's this great concept, Bruce Feiler, a writer has talked about life quakes. And he he did some interviews with uh, people all around the world and basically found that roughly every three to 10 years, depending on the person, we have what is known as a life quake. This is a life-changing, sometimes life-shattering event, mm. but it's it's universal. This happens to all of us. It might be the death of someone we love. It might be a divorce. It might be a change of career that's unwanted. It might be a financial hit. It might be a health-based hit. These things happen. Um, and so the book goes through some other things that you can do strategically, but I really mm. think the first place to begin is to anticipate that these things will happen and then to figure out how to cope with them when they do. Yeah. One thing I learned from your book was that when it comes to uh, generating businesses or, or new ideas, we see a lot written about younger people, about youth, about the younger generation uh, being responsible for, for much that is new and exciting. But you say the data doesn't actually back that up. What's, what's the truth? I think we focus on young people because precocity is really interesting. It's unusual. And that often happens, right? We end up, we end up thinking that what is eccentric and unusual is common 
because we spend so much of our attention understanding it and making sense of it. Mm. But the truth is the median age of a successful founder of a business, and in particular, the most successful founders is mid to late 40s or even into 50s. So that means because that's the median age, you've got this kind of peak around that age. But actually, there are many people finding their first and very successful businesses in their 50s, 60s, and beyond. Uh, and then obviously some, some who are younger. But that surprises a lot of people because our culture focuses so much on, on in particular in the tech industry. That's a, a, it's an industry that is dominated by very young people. Some of the wealthiest people in the world at the helms of the largest companies are very, very young and began very young. Some of them began in their teens or early 20s. 20s. And so we focus a lot on that. Um, there are even fellowships that are designed to reward youth for their businesses that say, if you're over the age of 25, don't apply. We're not interested. <laughs> so that turns out, I think, to be a mistake. Um, mm. And I say this selfishly as someone who's, who's approaching his mid 40s, that um, turns out that it, this is a good time to be coming up with new ideas because you have a lot of experience behind you. You've learned what does and does not work. And uh, mm. there's a huge amount of value in that. You know, you might throw some darts at the dartboard as a 20-year-old. Some of them may stick and more power to you, but a lot of them won't. And if they don't, you'll learn from them. And in your 30s and 40s and so on, you'll you'll become better for it. What I hear you saying, Adam, is there's hope for me. <laughs> there's, there's hope for all of us. That's hope for all of us, yeah. <laughs> By definition, uh, you can't be creative without deviating from the norm, right? But you say that uh, the people often believe they're actually doing that when they're actually sticking to conventional methods far more than they, they're aware. Talk a bit about the traps and lures chapter in the book and how it relates to, to this. Yeah. So th- this is something that I find quite interesting that um, you know one of the big traps in trying to be creative is we associate the ease with which an idea comes to mind with its goodness or its originality. So mm-hmm. if I'm sitting down to think about a new product, or I'm a musician, I'm trying to write a song, or I'm an artist, I'm trying to create a piece of work. It doesn't really matter what the domain is. What I will do and what humans generally do is they will consult what is known as metacognition. And that is the experience of how it feels to create that thing. And we we feel ease, particularly with ideas that are either common, that a lot of other people have, the first ideas that come to mind. And we often mistake that ease, the ease with which those come to mind for their goodness. But actually, a lot of those ideas, because they come to us easily, come to other people just as easily. They're the ones that hew to whatever orthodoxy there is or the way that other people are thinking to the herd. And what happens is when things start getting tough, you know, I pull, to, I pull five ideas from my head and those come easily. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, those ideas are much harder to come by. But also their hardness means that I'm starting to diverge from what is obvious. And those are the valuable ones. There's some fantastic research by Brian Lucas and uh, Lauren Nordgren, psychologists at Northwestern, or they were at the time, looking at... Um, what is known as the creative cliff illusion. And it's this illusion that we think that when things get hard, they become less creative. You know, my best ideas will come early. What they actually find is the reverse, which is that the, it's an illusion that your creativity falls off a cliff. What actually happens is you kind of lift off. So mm. once things start getting hard, that's when the good ideas, if you persevere, start emerging. And so that's one of the big traps is to quit too soon because you mistake the hardness with which those ideas come to you for inferiority, whereas they're actually often much better. There's a gentleman whose YouTube channel you reference. His name is escaping me now, but I've actually watched his stuff where he breaks down songs. And Rick Beato. Yes. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Uh, and music theory and just gets into this, the technical nature of music and how these songs uh, were crafted, et cetera. 
And the interesting thing to me is he's interviewed people like Seal and Sting, and they have similar responses to his question. How did you come up with this? How did you come up with that? Uh, share a bit about the the similarity in those responses and how they're very different than what this YouTuber thought they would be. Yeah. So I, I think... Um... The funny thing is there are a lot of musicians who are very, very technical and Beato himself is very technical. He's, mm. he's tremendously well educated. He has played as a studio musician with lots of the best artists today and, and actually going back into the seventies and eighties. So he's, he's steeped in musicology and, mm. and musical tradition, but not everyone is. And in fact, when he spoke to people like Sting and Steve and Seal, both of whom have been responsible for colossal hits that top charts around the world mm. were sold millions of copies. Both of them basically said there's a tendency to overthink. And actually it's about time, spend time creating. And th- what that time brings you is, is implicit skill, skill that you can't say, here's what I do. These are the specific things. Mm. I always follow the B flat major with the, you know, the, they don't have any of that. What they have is it just sounded right. And I could tell that was the place to go. Uh, and actually, what, what's in particular, what Seal said was, I didn't know any of that stuff. In fact, I find all the musicology paralyzing. And if I know too much, it diminishes my creativity. And mm. so sometimes I have some knowledge that I've, I've banked up over time, that I've saved up and accrued over time. I bring that to bear on any creative pursuits. But if I overthink it, it's, it's problematic. It actually diminishes my creativity. So all I need to do is just consult the intuition that's been crafted through experience. Another interesting aspect of that, I can't remember if it was uh, in Seal's story or Sting's story or someone else, but one of them, I think, referenced uh, accomplished musicians, people who, who know theory, who, who read music, et cetera, who just know their instrument inside and out, often are not writers, are not uh, lyricists, are not composers, in part because of what you're talking about. They're, 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 they're almost too technical. Is that, am, am I paraphrasing that well, or did I leave something out? <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. I think that's the eternal struggle for for creatives in general. And you've mm. written a book, and so you know this, that when you're writing a book, you have to decide how much other stuff to read first yeah. and, and how much to draw on and to what extent you want to mirror the mm. way people have done things in the past. You know, there are always titans in a particular area where you're writing the books. And so you might say, well, what would this writer do? But if you do that too much, you become too learned in an area, you become too theoretical, mm. you can often leech away some of the best stuff that would make you different and distinct. And so by remaining a novice to some extent, you, I think, leave a little bit of room to breathe, whereas being constrained too much by theory and algorithm can be problematic. And that's that's that balance of science and art. Yes, you need the science, but there's an art to being creative as well. And I think you need to preserve that. Mm. And when you lean too heavily into the science, sometimes the art gets left behind. Mm. Can you? Compare and contrast for us physical entrapment is the phrase you use versus uh, mental entrapment and and the difficulty that our bodies have of of telling those two apart. It's kind of sort of the 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 Serengeti thinking and worried about a saber toothed tiger coming out of the bushes versus tackling something new and exciting today or maybe something we've never done before. The feelings are very similar, right? Our body doesn't know the difference between the one fear and the other kind of fear, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you imagine that you're physically trapped. We can go back to the Serengeti or whatever whatever context you want. If you think about evolutionary history, 
humans that exist today are the descendants of the humans who back then figured out ways of getting untrapped. You know, mm. if you were physically trapped and an animal was coming towards you, it was a, a predator, you needed to get away. And if you didn't, well, your descendants aren't here today. And so we we were expertly over time crafted to be good at dealing with physical entrapment. In fact, you hear stories of people getting this rush of adrenaline, picking up cars. It's known as hysterical strength. Mm. So we're, we're very good at dealing with physical entrapment. But unfortunately, the same response also applies to feeling mentally trapped or cognitively trapped. And so you, you don't really distinguish between them. What you know is that you're somewhere you don't want to be. And what you do is flail. You have the same response, which is great physically. But flailing is a terrible way to deal with something that requires strategy and planning and forethought and consistent attention across time and consistent application of effort and labor. So we are we're sort of expertly designed for the physical form of entrapment, but we're the opposite for the kinds of entrapment that I deal with in this book, those kinds of getting stuck. Mm. Chuck Yeager is one example you give, I can think of this, where his plane is falling from the sky out of control and he's got he's got to get it level and figure that out before it hits the ground. Our survival instinct often pushes us to do more rather than less when times are hard. Why Adam is doing more often counterproductive. Yeah. Jaeger talks about how uh, a group of pilots were, were put into a stall position. And so their planes would plummet towards the earth. And the best way to deal with that was, was for a period of time to do nothing. And fighting with the controls made the situation worse. He attributed his survival to passing out, which by definition meant he was doing nothing. So on one of those first occasions, he passed out, woke up and things had improved. And he had this sudden flash of insight that turns out my body being incapacitated saved me. And so doing mm. nothing was the best way forward. Now that's me- a metaphor for what I'm talking about in the book, right. but very often doing nothing immediately is the way to solve the problem in the long run, which is a bit of a paradox because you you fight very hard to get unstuck by doing anything, something to move you from where you are. But there's a lot of evidence and, and some of my favorite um, stories from people who are very successful come from, from exactly this, this idea of, of pausing, taking a breath, taking a step back, and that at least initially doing that for, say, the first 5% of the experience means that for the remaining 95%, you'll be in much better shape. Adam has divided the book into four parts, help, heart, head, and habit with three chapters dedicated to, to each part. We're in part two now, if you're keeping score at home. What does it mean, Adam, to to fail well? Yeah. So you can fail. Failing is obviously by definition and by the nature of the term undesirable. No one wants to mm-hmm. fail. But there's a huge amount written about the benefits of failure, the suggestion that failure is inevitable, that it's a good thing if it's used the right way. And so in this chapter, I wanted to explore what that means. What does it mean to fail well? And, and there are two elements to this. One is how often should you fail? You know, if you succeed 100% of the time, by definition, you're not growing. If you fail 100% of the time or even 50% of the time, that's too much as well. It's demotivating. It's not going to lead to the greatest outcomes. So, you know, it depends on the domain, but researchers suggest that it's about between, you know, one in six and a quarter of the time you should fail, depending on the domain and depending on your temperament. That's very broad. It applies to lots of different situations. Mm. So that's the, the amount of failure. Then the next question is, what does it mean to fail well when you do fail? And the answer is that failure should become progressively closer to the goal, where each failure is smaller and smaller and smaller across time. It's actually a good rule of thumb when deciding whether to continue on with something or whether to quit and move on with something else, Mm. because you can't always persevere. Sometimes knowing when to quit is critical as well. There's 
been a lot written about that. Annie Duke has this terrific book, Quit, that's about exactly this. So converging on the goal despite failing is a really, really good sign that you should persevere and continue. And that's that's failing well, is taking failure well, you know, sort of being a good loser in effect, but also recognizing that your failures as they get closer to the mark predict success. And there's a lot of research that looks at long-term success and shows that if you backward engineer a, a true success, colossal success, and look at what happened before that success was reached, in many, many cases, in almost all cases, you find failures that got progressively closer to the mark. So there was that convergence. So if you find yourself on that track in an area, I'm playing golf and my score is going down or mm. whatever it might be, that's an easy one because it's objective. You should continue because you, you know, success is probably around the corner. Was this the chapter where you talked about the doctor or scientist who was trying to find and develop a medication for one thing and turned out he stumbled upon a medication for something else entirely? Uh, it it uh, it might have been that chapter. I think it was a slightly later on in the book, but it it's uh, I I'm not even sure now which chapter <laughs> it was in. But yes, that's exactly right. This this sort of openness. It might have been this chapter. The openness to failing and what failing can mean and how it can mm. inspire the next the next step or the the kind of pivot that's required to turn that failure into a success. Mm. Um, I talk about in this chapter the the advent of the the drug Viagra, which began its life as an almost failed heart drug. And uh, there were some scientists who were working, chemists who were working on the drug, and they had failed several times with different formulations. They were trying to find a drug to treat the heart condition angina, and they gave the drug to a whole lot of test subjects and then interviewed them and said, you know, has this improved your situation? And the last group they were working with was, was a group of Welsh lumberjacks. And they all met in this room, and the, the guy who ran this, his name is David Brown, worked for Pfizer at the time, he said that I knew this was my last chance, that I had no more funding. If this particular formulation of the drug did not treat angina, it was going to be a failure. And the, all the, these lumberjacks sit around and they're all saying, actually, no, it didn't help. It didn't work. And just as they're all packing up their chairs, they're about to leave this room where they're all sitting together. One of them says, ah, just one thing. It had this strange side effect. And suddenly all the guys in the room say, yeah, for me too. And, and you know, there were two ways to deal with that. One is to laugh it off and forget about it. The other is to turn it into a drug that has made 50 or 60 million, a billion dollars for mm. Pfizer. And so there's, there's something about being the kind of mind or person who takes failure and says, what does this mean? What is the most I can, what, what juice can I squeeze from this? Mm. And what David Brown squeezed from this was, was Viagra, <laughs> um, which was not where he expected it to go, but he ran with it and, and ended up getting funding for it, tested it. And within a couple of years, it ended up being one of the best selling drugs for the company. Mm. Incredible story. Yeah. Uh, now from the, the heart section to, to part three, the head. Make, if you would, Adam, a case for uh, simplification. This relates a little bit, I think, to maybe the, the Jaeger metaphor from before about doing less. But you say that unless you're encouraged to subtract, you're more likely to solve problems by adding complexity rather than, than simplifying. Why is that? Yeah, it's interesting. There's an engineer named Lydie Klotz who has done a lot of work on this. He gives people these Lego structures that are, are not well balanced. And he says, fix the structure. And what he finds is that intuitively people will get more blocks and they take more blocks and they build it up so that the structure is solid. But actually the easiest solution, particularly when he says for every brick you use, you're going to be charged more money just the way an engineer would if building something. The easiest solution is just to remove a couple of blocks, which then takes what's unbalanced and balances it. Mm. And he he wrote a whole book called Subtract about this idea that humans buy 
nature complicate problems. We bring more to bear instead of saying, hey, can I strip things away to make it easier to, to, to manage? And, and this seems to be true in, in a lot of cognitive domains as well, other domains beyond building things, where people just naturally go to the place of saying, how can I add to this? What else can I add to, to they don't mean to complicate it. They think it's going to solve it, but it ends up making it harder. And um, some of the people who are the best at what they do are very good at stripping away what's extraneous. Um, I talk in the book about this uh, lawyer that I used to sit with. I, I was studying law at the time and working at a law firm as a paralegal in Australia about 25 years ago. And I used to sit on a bus for 45 minutes every morning with another lawyer who now turns out to, to be a, a Supreme Court judge in Australia. He's a, he was a very prominent lawyer at the time. He would wheel this truck of folders onto the bus with him that the truck would sit next to him and it would be just a colossal pile of papers. And I knew that he was going to be in court that later that morning. Mm. And instead of studying them, he would sit and chat to me. Sometimes he'd have a nap. And one day I said to him, how do you, how do you manage this? Like, have you been reading these for the last six months that you don't need to read them now? And he said, no, it turns out 99% of what's in there, I don't need. My skill is not processing more information than you. My skill is knowing what not to have to process. It's knowing that in most ways, this is like every other case I've done before on this topic. And so 90% of what I know applies here. My, my job is just to bring the 10% that's unique to bear on this case. Mm. And that I can do without thinking. And I found that really quite a profound insight. And you see this diagnosticians, doctors who are very good at diagnosing illness. A lot of what they do is they say, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. But hey, let's focus on this. So simplifying is really a skill and it does unstick you in all sorts of different areas. Something I like to refer to often as selective ignorance, uh, especially yes. as it pertains to the information that we're bombarded by every single day and being able to understand the value of cherry picking what's coming at you and ignoring everything else. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we've, we've touched on this uh, a little bit, but not labeled it as such. I'd love uh, to share what you learned about the benefits of, of artificial constraints and embracing uh, the paradox that, that restrictions can be liberating. Yeah. This is, a, as you say, it's one of the paradoxes in the book that um, if you are stuck, you might think that you need more freedom, but often further constraining yourself is the road through. It's the best path through. Uh, I used to paint and draw. I don't have as much time to do it these days, but um, I'm colorblind. And so I used to find myself stuck and paralyzed by color choice, mm. choices of hue, which color, which, you know, I might have a set of paints or I might have a set of pencils. I used to use these huge sets of 300 different colored pencils. <laughs> And I would spend, I can't tell you how long on a work, some of these artworks would take me a year to create. And I would sit for days just trying to figure out what does the grass actually look like? And because I was colorblind, it was impossible. And I, I had this, this sort of flash of insight at one point, why don't I just take color out of the equation? And by removing color, by constraining myself, by making it about black, white, and, and actually brown in the case of these artworks, it just removed that particular set of questions and allowed me to really focus on my technique. And there's a lot of evidence for this, this approach, not just in painting, but in general, by, by limiting your options, you can focus on really what matters and what's central. Uh, and so stripping away a particular problem and taking one element and holding it constant, controlling it, in my case, it was color, mm. is, is a really, really valuable way to move forward. A lot of artists have done this, but people have done it in other domains as well. I teach a, a cohort called Note Making Mastery, uh, where we talk about something I 
hinted at earlier, being able to be selectively ignorant with what you hang on to and having a central place to keep it and being able to connect new ideas to existing ideas, organizing it well, distilling it down to your own thoughts and, 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 and way of communicating to ultimately then take those little building blocks and create with them. And a lot of people get stuck because they think, well, I've, I've got to be completely original. One of my favorite concepts in the book is this idea of what you call recombination, recognizing that there really are no original ideas, that the real skill is bringing together two or more seemingly disparate ideas. I'd love for you to expound on that a little bit. Yeah. The, the example that I stumbled on first was, you know, take, take someone who people consider to be dramatically and radically original. And in the world of music, if you ask musicians today, who in the 20th century represented true originality for you, a lot of them say Bob Dylan, that, that Dylan had a uniqueness to the way he wrote his songs and the way he sung them and the way he strummed the guitar and so on. So they, they point to Dylan. And um, what's really interesting is if you dig into Dylan's past and look at the early days of his songwriting process, he was borrowing from the folk tradition. He was borrowing from pop at the time. He was borrowing from rock, from jazz, from almost any and every area of music you can imagine. He admitted some of this later on in his life, uh, and a number of uh, of people accused him of uh, of actually, in some of his songs, um, from literally just lifting bits from other songs and other mm. music. But here's a guy who people are saying is is a true original, and yet even he is not truly original in that way. And so the basic idea here is that radical originality, taking something that does not have any relationship to what exists already is vanishingly rare. Uh, as a as someone who teaches marketing and, and in particular product design and product development, everyone wants that original product. There's really no, there's almost no such thing. Everything stands on the shoulders of what already exists. And so a better approach that you've described is recombination, which is what Dylan was doing. It's taking these existing elements that themselves are not original, but finding ways to knit them together so that they become original. Uh, one of my favorite examples, in fact, from the product world is a woman named Arlene Harris, who during the early days of the rise of smartphones in 2008, she saw the iPhone taking hold. A Apple had released just the first generation of the iPhone. And she interviewed a whole lot of older adults who were in their 60s and 70s and said to them, here's this new product. What do you think of it? And they, they said two things. First of all, clearly this is not made for me. It's <laughs> made by 20 and 30-somethings for 20 and 30-somethings. Mm. It's not made for people who are 60s, 70 and older. Uh, it's hard to use. It's not what I'm looking for in a product, but I want something that gives me a lot of the benefits that young people are getting from this product. This just isn't the product for me. Mm. And so what Harris did was she created this phone called the Jitterbug phone. Even the name is a throwback. <laughs> and she found all the best features, old features, but, but combined them in new ways to create a phone that was perfect for these older adults that did everything they wanted and nothing they didn't and ended up selling that company a few years later to Best Buy for a billion dollars. So when my students come to me and they're like, I, I want to be a business person, I want to find a product. I'm like, well, here's, here's one place to begin. Ask yourself, the whole tech world is dominated by young people. Is there something that you can do? Take something that's working for young people and make it for older adults. There's your, there's your recipe. And that's a matter of recombination. And I think in a lot of domains, that happens to be true. I remember the jitterbug commercials. I remember yes. laughing at the jitterbug commercials. <laughs> I, I think, uh, was it Arlene? Arlene Harris, yeah. Is having the last laugh there for sure. Uh, as I mentioned, I haven't got into reading the last section of the book, the habit section, which I promise I'm going to do today. I really am. <laughs> 
whether it's from that section or something else I've skipped over, what haven't I asked you, Adam, that you want to make sure people know or, or walk away with? Yeah. So uh, the, the habit section is about action. So we've talked a little bit about understanding and demystifying what stuckness is. We've talked a little bit about the emotional consequences of being stuck and how to, how to work through those. And then the strategies like accepting that you're never going to be radically original. And so recombination is a better place to begin. That's the cognitive element of, of all of this. But I think all of this is in the service of action because getting unstuck is about acting. So the last part of the book, I think is, is important for that reason. And the last chapter is, I title it Action Above All, which basically says that if you can act, you can get unstuck. And so how do you make sure that you act? Well, one thing you can do is to lower the threshold for an acceptable action all the way down to the floor. And and so there are lots of good examples of this. One of the good examples of it comes from Jeff Tweedy, the front man from Wilco, the band Wilco, who also happens to be a writer. And Tweedy talks about his creative process. He says, you know, over a period of decades, I've had to be creative, whether I'm writing books or writing music. And that is a that is a tall order. It's a big task. And I don't wake up every day inspired and ready to create a, gr- a great song or a great passage of writing. So what does he do? He says he pours out the bad ideas. He pours them out as though they're a liquid from his head. And he does that by saying, "What? let's say he's writing music today. What is the worst opening to this song I could write? The most trite, boring, uninteresting. And then he'll do that for half an hour. Mm. And by acting, he lubricates the wheels and things start moving forward. Sometimes those products are actually better than he anticipates, but usually they're not great, but they pave the way for the good interesting things that come later on. Um, and so shrinking down the the unit of action to its atomic element, you, you make it as small as possible. That might mean writing a single word, or if it's music, picking the next note. That by acting, you by definition in that moment are not stuck. And there's something very liberating about that form of feedback to yourself that then propels you forward and allows you to do more that, that's actually going to be useful. Mm. I love that. Seth Godin talks about the path to, to good ideas requires having enough bad ones first. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Adam, over the course of your career, what uh, have been some of the most impactful books on your career and life? Maybe these are books that you find yourself recommending on occasion. Yeah. I don't know if the books themselves are unusual picks, but I think my reasons, um, either they are unusual or at least they <laughs> pave the way for 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 me, like I think a lot of people read Malcolm Gladwell's earliest books in mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, The Tipping Point and Blink, and then Outliers, right. and got good ideas from them. But I think I got the liberty to to do from the academic side what he was doing. I don't want to profess to be at his level in any sense, but um, doing the academic version of what he was doing as a journalist. So what mm-hmm. he did was he he and continues to do is to take ideas from five disciplines that are unrelated and finding a way for them to all work together. He recombines ideas better than anyone. And that basically said to me when I got to the point in my career where I was ready to start writing that I could do the same with perhaps a more academic focus. And I found I found that tremendously effective in in making me feel like I could do that. And you know, I think he did that for a lot of people. Those Gladwellian books told a lot of academics that there was a place for us in the in the popular book writing nonfiction world. And uh, I remember reading Tipping Point and Blink in the early 2000s and then, you know, for a decade marinating on the idea that I wanted to write a book and then starting to write my first book in 2009, 10, mm-hmm. when I became a professor, I wouldn't have done it had I not read those books. So I think they, they had a huge effect on me and, and mm-hmm. I'm now lucky to count him as a friend and someone that I speak to pretty regularly. And I'm still astounded by his ability to knit together ideas and he, he sort of inspires me to do something similar with my writing. 
And he blurbed the book too, right? He did very generously. A brilliant detective story about the sources of human creativity. I loved it. You can't get a much better blurb than that, right? It was it was very <laughs> generous. I appreciated that. He's a he's a, given how busy he is. He's a very generous guy. Mm. I mentioned note making mastery earlier. It's a four prong process: collect, connect, crystallize, and create. Uh, you talk about uh, your process for collecting ideas in the book. I'd love for you to share what that process is like, uh, making sure that those ideas you want to later put to use don't get lost. Yeah, I have several documents. One of them is for my classes that I teach where I collect examples. One of them is for future book ideas. One of them is for future research ideas. And one of them is just a catch-all general ideas document. What I do is every time, no matter when it is or where it is that I come across an idea that's good, that's interesting, that makes me think differently about something that exposes me to a, a case study that I hadn't heard of before mm. that illustrates a particular point. It doesn't really matter what it is, but something that makes me stop and say, oh, that's interesting or oh, that's clever. I will lift it, paste it into this document. And every six months or so, I'll go back to these documents and see what I've pasted over the last six months. Mm. Sometimes there'll be hundreds of ideas. And I'll do a few things with it. When it comes to writing a book, I'll go through the entirety of all the documents and say, is there anything here that's relevant? So a lot of the ideas in this book come from that process. Mm. When it's teaching and I want examples of you know business case studies and, and consumer behavior ideas and, and whatever else, obviously, if, if you just said to me today, put together a course, you know, I want 100 ideas. <laughs> There's no way I can, no one can do that. Mm. But if you, if you distribute it across time that way and just let the ideas fall into your lap as they do and then to save them because you're never going to remember them, that's a really valuable practice that I think we should all have, which is to, to store those ideas because our heads aren't going to do it for us. Right. And to your point, when you do sit down to create, whether that's writing or something else, you're never starting with a blank screen or a blank page, right? You, you've, you've done much of the work already, and now it's just a matter of uh, finding the through line. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's that's funny because this book, I felt the content was already there. It was just a matter of figuring out the structure of it. And uh, and for that, I, that, that was the time spent was, was figuring out the structure mm. and then the actual writing. And I love too, at the end of the book, Adam includes 100 ways to get unstuck with ideas uh, relevant to every single chapter in the book. I, I read every one of those. I haven't read section four yet, but I did read every one of those at the end <laughs> of the book. And that book, again, is called Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. One of the six books I've been most looking forward to in the first half of this year, and I was not disappointed at all. Uh, Adam, uh, thank you again for being here. Loved the book, and I encourage everybody to grab a copy. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. This was fun. As per usual, you can find out ways to connect with Adam, follow up on the links and resources he and I talked about, get a summary of today's episode and more. All that's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 475 for episode 475. There you'll also find a link to my Read to Lead community. This week only, you can sign up to try the community free for 30 days. After that, it's just nine bucks a month. Find out more at jeffbrown.me. Not only can you hear from Christina Curtis as our guest expert next week in the Read to Lead community live, she's also our guest on the podcast next week as we dive into her book, Choosing Greatness, an evidence-based approach to achieving exceptional outcomes. That's next time right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. I hope you're here. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.